This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. As we stand, let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word to us this morning. I pray that you would illuminate it by the power and presence of your Holy Spirit to everyone, to all of us, wherever we are today. In Jesus' name, amen. Who are you? Our identity is so often caught up in what we do, what others think about us, what we think others think about us, or simply our own self-confidences or insecurities. Often, people who retire can face a huge identity crisis. Suddenly, their phone stops ringing. The only emails they receive are junk mail. And sitting at home, they're left wondering, who am I? And now, in the midst of a pandemic, stay-at-home orders, as we wonder what a new normal may look like, that same question rears its head for people of all ages. Who am I if I'm stuck at home? Who am I if I've been furloughed from my work? Or worse, if I've lost my job? Who am I? The Apostle Peter had a profound sense of his identity. He knew who he, who he was and whose he was. He knew with such certainty that he belonged to God, that he'd been called by God. But he hadn't always known that. Indeed, when we first encounter Peter in the Gospels, he seems to behave as if he's invincible. He is an impetuous, brash young fisherman who makes huge promises only to break them spectacularly. Today's gospel passage from John 14 immediately follows one such rash promise from Peter. Peter doesn't seem to know who he is. He's all over the map. But by the time he writes his pastoral letters to the scattered churches, he knows exactly who he is. And it's a delight to read those letters. And we see this in our epistle reading today, where we encounter an older wiser, chastened, more mature Peter at his very best. So what happened to make Peter going from not knowing who he was to becoming the wise pastor who called out the very best in people and who knew exactly who he was? It certainly wasn't outward circumstances. You know, he didn't live a quiet life of comfortable retirement when he wrote these letters. Indeed, he ended his life martyred for his faith. Peter's journey from brash new convert to wise and encouraging pastor is a journey that's actually marked by failure and brokenness on the one hand and forgiveness and restoration on the other. So let's start with the younger Peter. And our, our reading in John 14 today begins with Jesus saying, do not let your hearts be troubled. And Jesus here is speaking to Peter and the other disciples. And he says these very famous words from the Gospels immediately after the young Peter has made a promise that he would not keep. The context was the Last Supper. 
Jesus had given his disciples the new commandment to love one another as he has loved them. And Jesus is on his way to the cross. But Peter and the disciples don't know that. Jesus tells them that he is going where they cannot come. Well, that was completely unacceptable to young Peter. Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. It's impetuous, it's feisty, it seems loyal and genuine. I love what Dale Bruner writes about this. You are going to lay down your life for me? Jesus queries in what appears to be genuine astonishment. Peter, you have the whole thing upside down. We can almost hear Jesus saying, I am laying down my life for you. I tried to show you this at the foot washing a little while ago, and you only belatedly got it then, if you got it at all. How many times must I tell you, you are not the hero in this story. You are going to become perilously close to being the villain in it. And of course, in the scriptures, what Jesus says is to Peter, before the cock crows three times, you will have denied me three times. And then, without missing a beat, his very next words are, do not let your hearts be troubled. Well, what could be more troubling to your heart than to be told by Jesus that you're going to deny him? And yet these words of Jesus are an appeal not to give up, not to be downcast, even in the face of our own biggest failures. Jesus exhorts us to believe in God and to believe in him. And so this morning, whatever you are feeling about yourself, whether you think you are an invincible hero or a total loser, it's not about you. You're not the hero of this. Rather, believe in God, believe also in Jesus. The antidote to a troubled heart whether individually or corporately, is a fresh trusting in God, a fresh drawing closer to the one who calms our storms, who forgives our sins, and who covers our shame. And indeed, this is exactly what Peter experienced in spades. After his resurrection, Jesus takes time to be with Peter very specifically, and he restores him. I wish we had time, but they were there on the beach, and Jesus is cooking fish, and he takes Peter aside, and he asks him if he loves him. And he does it three times, and he wants to restore him. When it comes to knowing who we are, it is vital to know whose we are, and to know our true home and our true place of belonging. Jesus reassures the disciples that he is going ahead of them to prepare a place for them in his Father's house. And that by going to prepare a place, Jesus is bringing the day closer when he will return to take all of us to himself so that where Jesus is, we will be also. And I think we read that, and, and rightly so, as a reference to heaven and being with Christ for all eternity. And I think it is that, but it is also about how Christ promises to be with us now. It's about the real, ongoing, day-to-day -day presence of Jesus with his people. You know, just as back at Christmas, we were thinking about Emmanuel, God with us. So here, 
near the end of his earthly ministry, shortly before his ascension into heaven, Jesus is saying again that he is with us. And paradoxically, he will be more with us once he's gone away. For only then will he be more fully present with us by his Holy Spirit. So that's just a preview of Ascension Sunday that's coming up and then Pentecost after that. And Jesus says, you know where I am going. And Thomas, so grateful for Thomas, Thomas asked the question that everyone is thinking but no one else was willing to ask. We have got no idea where you're going, Jesus, so how can we possibly know the way there? And Jesus replies, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's so important that we understand that Jesus is not saying that he teaches the way or that he is our guide, but rather that he himself is the way. To follow Jesus is the only way to God. Now, that's not to say that no one can learn anything about God except through Jesus. No, not at all. The psalmist writes, the heavens declare the glory of God. Indeed, all truth is God's truth, and all life comes from God. But the fullness of God's truth and his life are seen in the Word made flesh, in the incarnate deity, the man who was God, Jesus. Knowing who we are and not being adrift is rooted in the knowledge of who Jesus is. The cornerstone of our faith and self-understanding is Jesus Christ, the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. I love how C.S. Lewis captures the essence of how Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life in his fictional children's book, The Silver Chair. And in that story, one of the characters, this girl, Jill, has entered a strange and magical country at the top of a very high mountain. And after wandering, um, around for, wandering around for some time and separated from her brother and all the rest of it, um, and she's very thirsty, Jill encounters a lion who is lying between her and a stream. And Jill is terrified of the lion, but she's also very thirsty. I, I want to read to you a brief extract because I think it's wonderful and it'll help us with this passage. Are you not thirsty? said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. Uh, may I, could I, would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious, rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she'd come a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. 
It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step closer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. It's a wonderful picture and rather sobering. Jesus, like C.S. Lewis's lion Aslan, is not safe, but he is good. There are those for whom, when following Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life comes into conflict with their own selfish desires, their preferences, their longings, their priorities, well, they decide to look for a different stream, so to speak. There's a popular saying that there are many ways up the mountain, but they all lead to the top. The trouble is, on lots of mountains that I've been on, there are indeed many paths, but many of them lead straight over precipices. There is no other stream. There is no other path. Jesus alone is the way, the truth, and the life. We might wish for a complete roadmap of the pathways of our lives, and may be frustrated not knowing how things will turn out or what the final destination may look like. But better than any roadmap is to have one whom we can follow, one whom we can trust, especially when the way is hard or we're assailed by doubts. And this one is Jesus. And it is this truth that Peter came to know and understand it is this that totally transformed Peter. It was his experience of Jesus' mercy, forgiveness, restoration, coupled with his willingness to follow Jesus, that enabled Peter to be secure in his own identity. Peter writes to the scattered church, reminding them to come to Jesus. And his words that we see in his first letter are both amazingly lofty and pregnant with meaning and rooted in the Old Testament and theology, while at the same time being intensely practical and grounded in everyday living. Those to whom he writes are in exile. The church is scattered. And yet Peter writes to them as to those who are a sacramental community. Listen again to what he writes. This is uh, from verses 9 and 10. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And these words are not grounds for arrogance or pride or thinking of themselves as better than others. No, they are a reminder to these Christians and to us that we are aliens and exiles in this world. And it's actually intensely political for those who are the church are to be a visible sign of an invisible reality, namely that King Jesus is sovereign above any powers, above any presidents, above any leaders. Jesus is our King. The very one who was rejected and crucified is the one 
who was raised from the dead and is the cornerstone of God's new temple. Our true identity is not our race, our nationality, our job, our wealth, our position, or our privilege. Rather, it is who we are in Christ. And Peter uses this analogy of living stones, which frankly is odd because stones aren't living things. But the point is that whereas God's people had for so long understood their identity to be focused in a place, Jerusalem, and more particularly on a particular building in that place, the temple, that is no longer the case. Our identity as Christian people scattered, literally scattered today across Pittsburgh and across the world, is that we are part of a new temple. Not a temple of physical stones in Jerusalem. Not a church of physical stones in Pittsburgh. God does not live in buildings. He dwells in a spiritual house. A house that is made out of living stones which is being built throughout the world. God is filling the whole world with his glory. And it was from this passage that we... Uh, came upon and took our, our slogan for our capital campaign, More Than Stones. You know, ascension is manifestly more than these stones. Indeed, this building is currently all but closed. But the church is anything but closed. Church of the Ascension is not, first and foremost, a physical building made of stones. Though, of course, such a building exists. I'm standing in it. And it's a prominent landmark in this part of town. But much, much more important than that, Ascension is a building made up of living stones. That is to say, people like you. People like me. And this building is an embodied building made out of people, living stones. And that is why it is so important that we continue to worship together, even in this less-than-ideal way through broadcasting a service. Because it matters. We're people. Peter reminds us in verses 4 and 5, Come to Jesus, a living stone, though rejected by mortals, yet chosen and precious in God's sight, and, like living stones, let yourselves be built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So what are these spiritual sacrifices? They're certainly not immaterial. No, they are the sacrifices of our embodied flesh and blood lives. You may recall the words of St. Paul that the celebrant in our services often says at the invitation to Holy Communion. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present what? To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. 
the embodied church then grows and is built up as we keep on coming to Christ. And like newborn infants, we drink the pure spiritual milk of God's Word. And as daily, we follow the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. Peter began this chapter with a few examples of what this life of love and spiritual sacrifice looks. It is marked by the absence of malice and guile and insincerity of envy and slander. And in verse 9, Peter reminds us of our true identity and purpose in life. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people. And listen to the next words. In order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And this changes everything. How we live, how we love reflects the true nature of who we are as God's living stones. And there are so many mighty acts of God that we can proclaim, as the children helped us to think about earlier. The exhortations to love others in this letter of First Peter and to put away all of that malice and slander and insincerity, etc., are not calls to do-goodism or moralism. Rather, they are callings to us to live into our true identity in Christ. How we speak and love reflects who we are as this embodied sacramental community. I wonder, how do your words, your Facebook posts, your love of neighbor reflect this? Remember that we are aliens and exiles who have been called out of darkness into the light of Christ. Our credentials for belonging are that we have been shown mercy, that we have been restored, that we may be just like Peter, impetuous and feisty and, and, and failing and letting God down. But God comes to us in his mercy to pick us up. And so the charge before us is to proclaim God's mighty acts and to live our lives honorably. Perhaps this pandemic will be a leveler. Perhaps we will be humbled. Our power and privilege and taken-for-granted freedoms have not protected us from this virus. As a nation, we have been stopped in our tracks. And we don't know how long this will go on for. And just because things are beginning to open up, we don't know what that really means. We don't know what the final financial and other consequences will be. But in the midst of our fears, our failings, and the uncertainty that surrounds us, we hold on to the church's one foundation, Jesus, our cornerstone, our rock, the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. I pray that we would know who we are and whose we are that we would live up to our calling to be living stones who are being built up into a spiritual house, a living temple, a people and a place that is a beacon of light and a harbinger of hope in a dark and broken 
world. And this building is one physical representation of this spiritual reality. And so I pray that we would be a people who continue to welcome our neighbors and to reach the nations with the light and love of Christ. And so I exhort you, using St. Peter's words this week, to rid yourselves, therefore, of all malice and all guile, insincerity, envy, and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk so that you may grow into salvation. Come to Jesus, a living stone, and like living stones, let yourselves be built into a spiritual house. This is who we are. This is our identity. This is our calling. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we are God's own people in order that we may proclaim the mighty acts of God who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Let me finish with this question. To whom will you proclaim the mighty acts of God this week? Amen.